Okay, rock and roll, here we go. Uh, turn back to Galatians chapter 1, and I want to segue to where we left off in Isaiah by looking at a New Testament passage with you in Galatians chapter 1. So um, what's going on in Galatia? We're going we're to do a, a drive-by exposition here of chapter 1, and uh, so we won't be able to get too deep into the waters of Galatians here. But um, what's going on in Galatia is, uh, first of all, the, the letter to the Galatians is written probably to a series of churches uh, in the Galatia region, which is kind of in the area of Turkey today. And there has been a onslaught of false teaching that has happened in this young church. And uh, many of you know this, uh, the, the false teaching that was going on was being propagated by a group of people called the Judaizers, and the, as the name implies, uh, what they were wanting to do was to make a hybrid religion between uh, the Christianity of the gospel of Jesus and some of the Old Testament uh, law practices that we know were fulfilled in Christ and thus no longer applicable to believers, but they were wanting to, to sort of superglue some Judaism on the end of Christianity uh, in all that. And you can imagine um, this young church with powerful, compelling, uh, uh, good speakers, uh, powerful leaders that were bringing this, how difficult it must have been to cave in. And, and this is the situation we think about today, that when there are people around us that have power and position, when they have authority over us, uh, when they speak to our well-being in life in some way, and they begin to challenge what we know is right in Scripture, one of the temptations is to compromise what we believe because of their view of us, of their authority over us. Uh, we don't want to make them mad. We don't want to upset them, especially as they have great uh, sway over our lives sometimes. So that's what's going on in Galatia is the, these young believers are trying to respond to these false teachers. And the temptation is to adopt their teaching because they fear their opinion. They, they value and, and in a sense fear their opinion. So Galatians chapter one, um, and uh, this, this is good to remind ourselves. So look at verse 6. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him, that's Jesus, who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven, it's interesting, two of the major religions of the world started as we know, because an angel came and supposedly gave them the start of that, and those two religions are Mormonism and Islam. Very good. Okay? So even if, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Wow. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, he is to be accursed. Um, God says in the strongest language available that if we turn away from the true gospel of scripture and we adopt a false gospel uh, that we are accursed of course that word means uh, to be judged um, so that's not, not good news and then paul says this and this is this is the connection to isaiah for am i now seeking the favor of men or of god or am i striving to please men. What's he saying? 
He's saying the reason that so many people are buying into a false gospel is because of a desire to please those other people. To not have them be unhappy with you, to, to look good in their eyes. Uh, or perhaps they have power over you and, and you don't, you give in because you don't want them to make uh, your life uncomfortable. Listen to the, listen to this line. And if you like to memorize passages in scripture, which I would encourage you to do, this is a great verse to memorize, especially for you people pleasers out there. Listen to this. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You got it? You can't live to please God and please people. You can't do it. That's what Paul's saying. He said, if I was still a people pleaser, I wouldn't be a slave of Christ. Uh, like, like in the time of Joshua, we have, we have to choose today whom we will serve, right? You, you can live for the smile of other people or you can live for the smile of Jesus, but you can't live for both. And uh, so just keep that in mind because uh, this is... This is a very relevant uh, aspect of our, our lives today as uh, the um, the growing temptation to compromise is great. Uh, I don't know if any of you saw the news article this week. Uh, Amazon did something. Uh, any, any Amazon shoppers out there? Amazon? Did, raise them high. Come on, Rick. I know you are. I know you are. Any prime members? Prime members? Okay. Isn't that cool? You know? Um, Amazon did something this week that if the trend continues will put great pressure on believers in terms of how they think about and even use Amazon. Now, I'm not, I'm not I want to tell you, I'm not one to go out and say, let's boycott everybody that, that you know, sneezes at the gospel in some way, Okay. Uh, like Paul says in Corinth, if we were to do that, we'd have to leave the world. There's just there's too much corruption around us. But uh, Amazon banned a type of book this week. Um, many of you probably know, understand the term conversion therapy. Are you familiar with that? So conversion therapy is a secular therapy which is designed to help people that are struggling with homosexuality to come back to a heterosexual frame of life, okay? Um, now, conversion therapy is not the gospel. It's not Christian. Um, so, so I'm not here saying do that. In fact, a conversion therapy is not a good way to minister to people, um, according to Scripture. But here's the thing. Uh, Amazon banned those books, and the language of why they did it is broad enough that if there are Christian books that are trying to help people struggling with homosexuality to repent of that and to trust Christ and to walk in sexual purity, that those books could potentially be banned too. Welcome to 2019. Now, we don't know. I'd encourage you, uh, maybe we... Uh, throw it up, um, make it available on the website. Uh, one of my good friends, uh, Kevin Carson, who w- is going to be here teaching this fall in our conference. He's been here before. Uh, he wrote a, a great piece on that on his website. Also, Denny Burke, uh, 
who's a professor out at Southern uh, Seminary in Louisville, um, the uh, current uh, um, president of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, also uh, wrote on this this last week. So, so Google it, check it out. We'll, get, we'll give you some links to articles. But, but here's the thing, you know, would you continue uh, in that moment when now you have one of the largest vendors that we all use or many of us use and they're starting to say, hey, maybe maybe this is going to be a time where we're going to start banning books that don't happen to promote the political message that we think is appropriate. So that is a that is a very real, like fresh off of the news this week example of what we're talking about here, that the temptation to compromise is only going to get greater. And that's why we need Mr. Isaiah. Because Isaiah is writing to a group of his people, the nation of Judah, at a season where their king is being tempted to compromise what he knows the word of God says because of the threat around him. Assyria runs the known world. The two nations immediately to his north, Syria and Israel, have formed a pact, and they're going to come attack Judah and bring them into their political alliance so that they can resist Assyria. And King Ahaz, what does Ahaz do? Yeah, he wants to go join Assyria. He wants to go join the enemy because he thinks that would be a better arrangement than being taken over by these two much smaller neighboring countries. Now, Ahaz is the king of Judah. He is in the line of David. He is the recipient, as all all, uh, kings in the line of David, of the covenant promises of the Davidic covenant. And so Isaiah goes to him and says, you're in the best position in the world. You, You are in this line of protection in the Davidic covenant. You don't need to compromise your message. You don't need to go sign an agreement with the enemy. You don't need to fear invasion by these two neighboring countries. Trust what God's word says. Now, do we need to hear that today? Absolutely. Is, is the temptation to fear other people, to give in? Because uh, here, here's what's going to happen in America. Our life is going to get really, really, really uncomfortable. You can be a Christian as long as you don't rock the boat on the political issues that the secular, atheistic, immoral culture is promoting. Okay? So you can be a Christian. Just don't don't talk about what marriage actually is, according to the Bible. You can be a Christian. Don't talk about sexuality or gender the way God describes it. You can be a Christian. Just just don't, don't go share your faith. Just keep it a private thing. Right? And, and those are the sorts of things, well, you know, Jesus knows what I, what I believe in my heart, so maybe I can't. And I'll tell you what, that, that's the end of the deal right there. We need, guys, the message of Isaiah to remind us that, that sanity and safety and health and well-being and flourishing before the Lord is founded always upon taking God at His Word, believing His Word, standing on His Word, and staying on His Word regardless of what happens. And that that needs to be the commitment of our heart. So, with that in mind, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 8, and let's pick it up where we left off, okay? 
Uh, the title of our uh, uh, study that we uh, left off last time is Hope and Judgment. And uh, you'll recall that following Isaiah chapter 7 with the, the child Emmanuel, the virgin is with child, gives birth to a son and uh, names him Emmanuel, that in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 1, we saw this last time, that there is a second sign and a second child. These two children relate to King Ahaz as signs of what the prophet Isaiah has said. Uh, the first sign of the virgin that will be with child is indicative of the fact that when this child comes into the world, he will come into the world, though he be a king, that he will come into a, into a world that is laid bare, that is desolate, that is in poverty. Uh, he will not come into the world in a royal palace. He will come into the world in the poorhouse. You say, well, how's that a sign? It's a sign because that condition of poverty that Emmanuel is born into is directly linked back to Ahaz's disobedience. And the fact that um, God is true to his word. So in chapter 8, verse 1, we see a second child. This child is a child born to Mrs. Isaiah. And uh, particularly given uh, here is this name... Uh, and uh, uh, young moms, you know, you might want to write this down. You know, the next time you, you know you, you're expecting, this is a great, uh, a great name, Macher Shalal Hashbaz. Okay, just write that down. Um, I think we can fit that on a baby blanket, can't we? Can we do that? Uh, and what does that mean? Remember, it's 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 kind of like uh, many many tekel uparsin in Daniel. It's it's four words that announce judgment. So we saw here that um, uh, the word here, macher, means uh, swift or quick, as in the um, invasion will be quick. Shalal is uh, the word for booty, or we might think of it as the spoil that an enemy would take from a conquered nation. Uh, Hash is related to the word for speed or speedy, again, talking about the, freq- the, the intensity and, and the swiftness of the invasion. And uh, baz is the word for prey, uh, this idea that you're going to be overtaken like, a, like a, um, you know, an animal would overtake uh, the prey that he is pursuing. Now, why, why do we uh, name him that? We name him that as a judgment uh, for what's about to happen. Now notice this, verse 2, I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of uh, Jeberishiach. And that, um, remember we talked last time that those, those two men were witnesses to the fact that Isaiah had given this prophecy before it came about. Um, again, emphasizing the prophetic nature. Of course, the prophetess in verse 3 there is Mrs. Isaiah, and uh, she will bear uh, the child called Macher Shalah Hashbaz. And... Um, <clears throat> And again, he will be a second sign, as was Emmanuel. Now, the king of Assyria will overtake all of Syria and Israel, but Judah will survive. And we looked at that in verses 6 to 8, uh, describing the onslaught of Syria and Israel. But, of course, Judah will make that uh, alliance with them, and so they will, uh, they will survive the invasion. Okay? A couple more things to review, and we'll get up to speed where we were. Now, there are warnings that we saw back in verse 9. Uh, if we look back there, 
be broken, O peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all remote places of the earth. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand, for God is with us. So, so here it changes, because whereas the previous verses were about uh, the invasion and destruction of the nation, here we see that there will be a remnant that God spares. And uh, the reference there to God being with us, that's another reference to Emmanuel, linking back to 714, that we saw the child named Emmanuel. Uh, anyway, so, um, but we'll see that, that the plan of God cannot be thwarted because God is with this remnant people there in verse 9 and verse 10. Verse 11 is a specific warning uh, to Isaiah not to compromise and not to give in. This, this goes back to what we talked about in Galatians. God's message to the people is don't compromise. They're tempted to side with Ahaz and Assyria. God warns the people in verses 12 to 15, don't do it. And, and notice, this is uh, where, we, where we stopped last time. How are they tempted? They're, they're tempted uh, in what we think of as sinful fear. So look again at chapter 8. Uh, verse 12, and look at the temptation. It says, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call conspiracy, and you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. What what do the people fear? That's right. So, yeah, so they fear the invasion of Syria and Israel, don't they? And they're going to come in, and uh, Isaiah is saying, you have the promises and covenant of God, you don't have to freak out about this. Trust what God's word has said, and you will be okay. Uh, He gives them uh, the signs that we see given in chapter 7 and chapter 8. And yet, their temptation is to fear the people and side with Ahaz. And what does Ahaz want to do? He wants to go to Assyria and make an alliance with them of protection against uh, Syria and Israel. Uh, just so you know, this is a speaker thing. I'm having to say us, Syria, and Syria back to forth. So if I ever get it wrong, just put your hand up and say you meant Syria, right? Okay, so us, Syria, Syria. Uh, there you go. Okay, so back to the text. Um, do not fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear. We talked about that. We regard what God says separate from all this mess, all this temptation, and we say we're going to stand on what our God has said, and we shall fear him more than we fear the threat of invasion. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. And um, I think we talked about this last time, but um, when we talk about the fear of God, there's sort of the there's sort of the danger form of that, and then there's the awe or worship form of fear. And actually, there's three different words here used uh, for fear, and they have different nuances. But when we think about the fear of God. We're, we're thinking about the fear of God that says God is a threat because He's the divine judge of the universe and in my sin, he is dangerous, isn't he? In terms of him coming in judgment. Uh, when we turn from our sin to the Savior 
and trust Him and have our sin forgiven and the wrath of God poured out on Jesus instead of us, that fear changes from a danger fear to an awe fear, uh, a reverent fear, a, a fear of worship and love and respect and, and admiration uh, in light of what He's done for us in Christ. So, so the, what Isaiah is saying here is you need to fear the Lord more than you fear the threat of other people and, and what they can do. Now, let me ask you this. Are you, are you ever tempted to fear something else more than you commit to what God has said? More than you fear the Lord? You ever do that? And, and I'm not want to put anybody on the spot, but you want to volunteer. What are some of the things that we're tempted to fear instead of fearing the Lord and, and honoring Him and, and submitting to what He says? What, what are some areas of life where we might struggle with that? Financial, yeah. All right. Yeah, we, we might freak out over our finances and, and maybe even be tempted to do something uh, less than ethical, right? Rather than fear the Lord. Yeah, Grant. Health. health. Yeah, health and persecution, yeah. Yeah, can, can, can I ask you a question? Can, can we get to the point with our health that we are focusing all of our time and attention out of fear rather than turn to the one that made our bodies, knows our bodies, um, is in charge, and to rest in Him and, and to trust Him. Are we ever tempted to put all our focus on health out of fear instead of starting? And I'm not saying, you know, don't go to a doctor and, you know, don't take a medicine or don't change your diet. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, where do we run first? Right? Do we let the fear of the threat of health drive us to that sort of compulsive, I've got to figure this out, Right? Or do we stop and say, hey, wait a minute. I need to go to my Savior first and trust in Him and rest in Him. Okay, that's excellent. I think that's a, a big deal. Tony? Fear of losing our freedom. Yeah, we just had our, uh, our nation's uh, sort of birthday this last week, and we think about the freedoms we enjoy. We were talking in our family about how rare those freedoms are. Uh, some of you have lived in other countries, you've been to other countries, and you recognize uh, that's not normal. Um, the loss of some of those freedoms. Yeah. You know what's encouraging, and, and we ought to be thankful for the freedoms we have. Do you know the vast majority of Christians in history have not had freedoms like we have? The vast majority have not. And I'm not saying whether that's good or bad. I'm just saying our brothers and sisters that have gone before us have walked in very different conditions in terms of their faith. And uh, so, but yeah, we can fear that, can't we? Okay, someone else. What, what do we tend to fear? Yes, ma'am. I guess except that, you know, I've been hearing in the, or seeing in the news where there are students in college classes because of their professors who have had to stand up for what they know. Right. Ethical, they're they're yeah. spun out of the class. That's right. Yeah. Uh, professors have the right to do that. Yeah. So That's right. Praise be to those that are standing up. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Pray, pray for our young people. I think that's a good point. You know, colleges are, are a pretty dangerous place for the most part. We're thankful for some really good schools out there that are that are, um, you know, built on the gospel. But yeah, secular schools are, are a pretty hostile place, aren't they? And our young people like getting getting kicked out of class, getting ridiculed uh, for standing for biblical morality, let alone the gospel um, is huge. Now, now let's take your example, okay? Let's say there's a, there's a college student in our midst or a college student that we know, and that student knows that if she, if she writes in her essay what she really believes, 
or if she puts her hand up when the professor says, tell me what you think about that, and she articulates what her faith says, she's probably going to get uh, hurt, penalized in her grade, isn't she? Wouldn't it be easier for her to just not put her hand up, get a better grade? Right? See, those are the sorts of things we're talking about. And um, that's why we need Isaiah. We, we, need, we need to anchor ourselves in the text that says, if God is for us, no one can be against us. And, and it may cost us a class or a grade. Um, I, I, th- I think, frankly, that for our young people, what they're going to have to decide is fidelity to Jesus or success in my career, in my school, my finances it may it may not be that that dichotomous but to some degree they will be penalized financially in business in school in success in their career if they stand up and say my faith is going to make a difference in my life and i'm going to lead with that rather than keep quiet about these things that i shouldn't keep quiet about it's already happening guys so we we need this we we need to recognize that to fear the lord as Solomon has told us, is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Life is in the fear of the Lord. Um, there's a great proverb that says, in the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. You know, don't put your confidence in yourself. Don't put it in your abilities. Put your confidence in the Lord. And um, as another proverb says, he will make your paths straight. Okay? So the solution to sinful fear is the fear of the Lord. And yet... Some will stumble at God's words to their destruction. Look at this. The very message of God that Isaiah is bringing will be a stumbling block for the nation of Israel. Then he will become a sanctuary, but to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Uh, Pastor Terry uh, is is approaching this section in Romans, but uh, this is language that the New Testament writers will author to say that the stone that the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone, doesn't it? God's message of salvation that's a stumbling block to so many becomes the, the foundation of life. So we see that in 1 Peter and in Romans. Okay. So now we got our new material in front of us. So uh, grab your pen there and let's... Um, Let's jump back in here. Verse 16, Isaiah chapter 8. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. And I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. What's going on there? What's he saying? That's right. Right. Yeah. 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 But I think by bind up the law, what he's saying is, you know, seal this up. You know, he's been, he, you know, Isaiah has been out there preaching it and he's saying, okay, you know, set this down, bind it up, keep it with you. And remember that just because the people aren't responding doesn't mean God isn't at work, right? Remember what, what God told Isaiah in chapter six. I know that was several weeks ago. In Isaiah's call to ministry, 
and uh, you know this great revelation of who God is, and you know here I am, send me, and and God says, okay, let me tell you what your mission's going to be. I want you to go and preach to a people that's not going to respond. And Isaiah says, okay, well, how long? And Isaiah says, uh, until the place is destroyed. And I've said it before, I've said it, just imagine if, if God's will for your life was to be a complete failure as a prophet. In the eyes of men, right? You know, there's that unbelieving person you work with. And you spend your whole career talking to them about Jesus. And they keep living for themselves, just like they have all those 20 years you've worked with them. You can feel like a failure, can't you? And yet, what Isaiah, what God is telling Isaiah is, recognize that that doesn't mean God isn't at work. Uh, we don't know, Isaiah knew his plan. We don't know God's specific plan always in our life. But that's his call, right? Wait for the Lord. Don't stop doing what's right because it doesn't look like God's at work. You keep preaching, you keep uh, uh, standing on this testimony, and you wait for the Lord. Who is, look, at, look at the language here. Who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. Does God play hide and seek? Ooh, that's a good theological question. We should have covered that in kindergarten, shouldn't we? Does God play hide and seek? Yeah, God doesn't play games with people. There, there are times when he feels like he's not there. And there are times as an act of judgment, he removes his hand. We see that throughout the nation of Israel as, as people rebel him. But, but God, God never steps off the throne of the operation of his plan in life, even when it seems like it. So he tells him, bind up this testimony and wait. Wait for the Lord. Look at verse 18. Um, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah had at least two children in these texts that we know. Uh, the first one uh, we read of back in chapter 7, verse 3. His name is uh, Shear Yashub, which is a reference to a remnant remaining, right? And then uh, his second child that we learned at the beginning of chapter 8, uh, uh, Mr. Macher. And um, so Isaiah's two boys were living, breathing testimonies, or what Isaiah calls here signs and wonders. What were they signs and wonders of? What's that? That's right. Um and it's interesting, and I, I want to oversimplify the book of Isaiah because it's complicated, but in a sense, Isaiah's two sons articulate two main themes in the whole book of Isaiah. One is judgment, right? Uh, assault, swift takeover, judgment coming in the nation of Assyria, as we see in, in uh, uh, the son named Macher. The other son is a reminder of the promise of the book of, of Isaiah, isn't it? It's the promise that a remnant will remain. But they were living prophecies, signs and wonders used here um, to the nation. Now, where should the people turn for help? Look at verse 19. When they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. 
If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Let me ask you a question. When you're scared, when you are afraid of something, have you noticed that you will run to places for help that when you're in a better frame of mind, you would never go to? You ever done that? We do crazy things when we're scared. We are more tempted to go to unhelpful and even ungodly places for help when we're being driven by fear. Now, I don't think for a minute that the nation of Judah had totally forgotten the Torah. That in the verses referenced there in your notes, we won't look at those right now for sake of time, but Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 18, they were forbidden from any sort of mediums or spiritists or uh, the, the pagan religion practices that were available there to consult for advice or for the future, to connect with the underworld and all those sorts of things. Why are they doing it here? Because they're afraid. I bet, and we won't, we won't go around the room, but I bet you can look back on your life as I can and say there was that time in my life when I was scared and I made a really bad choice about how to handle it. Right? Can you? And I think we all have those places that we run um, that are unhelpful places. And I'm not, I'm not thinking, you know, you know, you pull out the Ouija board. I mean, maybe, maybe you did that. I don't know. But, <laughs> but my, my point is, you know what? You know what? You go to Google instead of God sometimes, don't you? Right? We go to friends instead of the friend who sticks closer than a brother. We look for a secular answer when we know we have a sufficient scripture. And, and we look at this and we say, there has to be more than this. This is not enough for my situation. Right? We do that. We, we, we all have tempted done. We've all done that. And so, again, let, let's heed the warning of Isaiah that when we're being driven by fear, we are more easily tempted to go look for solutions in places that are ungodly and unhelpful. And that's what they're doing here. They're, they're turning to uh, the pagan spiritists and mediums and consulting the dead and, and all these sorts of things. Verse 21, they will pass through the land hard pressed and famished. It will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will curse their king and their God. Well, by the way, what happens when you do that? What happens when you turn to other places for solutions? Even if they work, that's the crazy thing. Do you think the devil is in to offering alternatives to God and all of them don't work? Huh, no. His favorite sales pitch is, here's something that works, at least for a little while, or has the appearance of working. And in the end, it comes back and it kills you, pushes you away from God. That, that's the result here. In the end, they, they're turning to these these wrong places to go in their fear, turning to the spiritists and, and the, the mediums for help and what will happen. Destruction comes. Look at them. They're enraged and they curse their king, that's Ahaz, and their God 
as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distressed in darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away in darkness. The sad future state of the people and the land is evident from those verses. He does. Uh, That's right. Yeah, it's interesting. I appreciate that connection because, you know, you, you see how um, a lot of times you have what's going on in the immediate context and then you have these these future connections in terms of the messianic rule. This, um, you know, we think of chapter 7, verse 14 is about the Messiah, but the Messiah actually is talked about in 7, 8, and 9, and there's lots of connection with the New Testament, as you're pointing out. So thank you for sharing that. Okay, now... So we got this this really minor key note that's struck at the end of chapter 8, what's doom and gloom and hopelessness. Watch this. Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for who who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. Now, we read that. Every Christmas, and uh, we need to remind ourselves of the geography here. Okay, I want you to if, if you get if you get the call from Lacey to do the Advent reading for Isaiah nine come December, some of you will get that call, and you're going to read about Zebulun and Naphtali and Galilee here. You need to remember what that's a reference to. Okay, aren't these new projectors great? You can actually see the map. Okay, so the, this is the original sort of distribution of the 12 tribes. And remember, Assyria and Israel are in this region, okay? So near Naphtali, near Zebulun. So the reference there is that Assyria, whose empire is here, as they invade, Naphtali and Zebulun are the first two areas to be taken over when Assyria invades. That's why Isaiah mentions them here. Naphtali and Zebulun. And of course, Assyria is up here and they're going to come down into the nation through those regions. So that's, that's why Isaiah talks about them. Those were the first nations, uh, the first part of uh, the nations to be uh, destroyed, the first to get hit there. Okay, But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, Contrast this with 8, right? Behold, distress, or, uh, with the end of verse 8, uh, verse uh, 20, 22, 8, 22. Distress and darkness and gloom of anguish. 9, 1, now there's no more gloom. Verse 2, and the people who walk in darkness will what? They'll see a great light. 
So here we go. Isaiah's pivoting again. We got doom and gloom and judgment and darkness. Then he pivots over and says, but wait, there's hope. There's a remnant. God has a plan. He's not abandoned his people. This parallels very nicely what Pastor Terry is talking about in Romans 9. God doesn't uh, forever abandon his people. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Notice this. You. What's you? What just happened? Now, I know you thought when you graduated from third grade, you wouldn't have to think about pronouns again the rest of your life. But I'm here to tell you, you were wrong. Okay, I love you, but you were wrong. Um, you have to watch these language changes. Okay, Isaiah is talking largely in the third person, right? He shall make it glorious by the way of the sea. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Verse 3, what's the change? You. Okay. Okay. You. Now he's talking more directly, right? You shall multiply the nations. You shall increase their gladness. They shall be glad in your presence. This is you, not y'all. Right? What's going on here? There's a spiritual renovation, right? The nations multiply, their gladness increases, and they will be glad in the presence of this person who is being talked about. As with the gladness of harvest, men rejoice when they divide the spoil. You shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders. Um, identifying the freedom from oppressors, that's actually an allusion back to the book of Exodus in the time of Egypt. And then he gives another reference here. The rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. You remember the battle of Midian in the book of Judges uh, in regard to the judge Gideon and the threat of the Midianites and, and the battle won there. So they're looking back historically to these times of victory where they were under oppression and then gained their freedom. Verse 5, every boot of the booted warrior, I love the, the language here, the boot of the booted warrior in battle tumult and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. What does that mean? Yeah, they'll be defeated and there's no more war. There's peace. Again. Now, you got to put yourself in the sandals of, of the, the folks in Judah when this is being written. What's going on? The threat of Assyria... The threat from Syria and Israel, and they're all, they're preparing for the fight. They're trying to figure out what to do. And now this message that the war is going to be over, there's going to be peace, there's going to be gladness like at the harvest because of this one. This person that's going to come and make all this happen. And so we're, we're on the edge of our seats going, Isaiah, who is this person that's going to do this? That's going to free us from our oppressors. That's going to bring freedom and gladness in his presence and joy and, and put this war away. You ready for this? You know these verses. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Hang on, hang on. And the government will rest on his... A toddler is going to do all this? A child? 
is going to do all this? So we see that this ruler that comes is the solution. Now, here's what we don't always see. You can draw a line between Emmanuel in Isaiah 7.14 and the landowner in chapter 8, verse 8. And the deliverer in chapter 8, verse 10, is it? Uh, yes, 10. And the king in 9-7. And you're supposed to see that connection. Okay? The child Emmanuel, the one who owns the land, the one who delivers the land, who eventually comes as king... There is a line connecting those individuals. So when we hear this, this isn't the first time. When a child is born to us, a son is given to us, that references back to 7.14. He has this governing role that we see here, right? The government rests on his shoulders, um, signifying his rule and his reign. Now think of Psalm 2. Think of the psalm we read this morning. Now, watch this. He has some titles. And I don't know, because this is a Christmas song or a Christmas verse, and we, you know, they kind of roll off our tongue, wonderful counselor, mighty God, you know, and we get that. And sometimes familiarity in Christianity hurts us, doesn't it? So I want you to soak up the significance of this tie, of these titles. Each one of these titles is designed to help us to see the nature of this king. Let's look at title number one. Uh, your Bible and my Bible probably say something like Wonderful Counselor. Um, if you look into the background of the word, especially as it's used in a context like this, it actually has the idea of supernatural involvement or God involvement. So when you hear Wonderful Counselor, don't mean, oh, that's that person that just listens to me and, you know, and that... Don't think wonderful counselor like we might think of a secular counselor that, that's just a great listener and gives good advice. No, what Isaiah is saying is that this child, this king, comes and he brings a counsel or a wisdom that is uniquely divine. It's supernatural. It's the word of God, not the word of men. So that title really points to his wisdom there. Notice this one, Mighty God, Mighty God. And as it obviously implies, we're talking about divinity here. Now, this is weird, okay? What was the child's name in 714? For you guys in the cheap seats, can you see that? All right, cool. All right. What is it? Well, Emmanuel means what? God with us. And here in 9-7, one of his titles is what? See, sometimes we think Emmanuel, God with us, like, like uh, you know, this child is going to remind us of God or this ruler is going to be like, like David, right? David was a man after God's own heart. He's, he's like God. But see, this title 
changes our interpretation, doesn't it? Or at least it doesn't, it, it, it clarifies how we need to interpret that. Might be a better way to say it. I mean, you just don't go around calling yourself mighty God unless you are. Right? You don't do that. So he's a supernatural counselor speaking of his wisdom. Mighty God speaking of his divinity. Now you can imagine how the original readers here, they're starting to make connections. They're thinking Psalm 2, the Lord said to my Lord. Right? They're they're thinking about these allusions to the fact that uh, we have some references at this point in Isaiah's history, we have some psalms that talk about a son who is the son of God. And you wonder, as they're hearing this, are they going, is this him? And that's why we read this at Christmas time. Because we get excited that Jesus is coming. God in human flesh. And we ought to. And these original readers, as they're putting this together, it could be, at least it was the intent of God, that they start saying, wait a minute. This sounds like the Son of God. This sounds like Messiah. Notice number three. This is the one that people struggle with. Eternal Father. We think, oh, that doesn't work because we believe in the Trinity. There's God the Father and God the Son. God the Son isn't called the Father. Okay, well, don't, don't go all systematic theology on me just yet, okay? Uh, hold your place there. Flip back to Psalm 68 for a moment. I want you to see this because... We don't need to trip over eternal father in the sense of saying, well, that, that sounds like it's, it's messing up the persons of the Trinity. No, no, no. By eternal father, Isaiah is not playing around with the members of the Trinity. He's talking about the unique care, the sort of fatherly care that this ruler will bring. Listen to Psalm 68 as, as a way to sort of flesh this out. Um, Just to get a little bit of context, look at 68 verse 4. Sing to God. Sing praises to His name. Lift up a song for Him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exult before Him. What's God like? Okay. Now this is not talking uniquely about any particular member of the Trinity. It's God in general. But listen to the description. Verse 5. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows. Is God in his holy habitation? God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. So we see that God in his nature is what? He's a father. He's, he's caring. He, he's sympath- and you think about this. Think about this in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Of course, Isaiah would not have known this. But, but years down the road, when Messiah comes, when Jesus comes, what was Jesus doing a lot? Uh, who was he hanging out with? The, the sick? The poor? The outcasts? The widows? The children? The prostitutes? The, the tax collectors? The, right? So we, we see that what Isaiah 68 is saying of God in general, we see that played out through the unique work of Jesus in his life and ministry. Now again, Isaiah doesn't know that, but this title, Eternal Father, is again, it's not messing with the, the persons of the Trinity, it's demonstrating that, that the Son, this, this Messiah, or, or this child, this King, as we know him at this point, is going to exemplify a fatherly care in his rule. 
Now that's interesting, right? Because when Jesus comes in Revelation and he cleans house, we think he's he's this mighty warrior that you don't want to mess with because he will kill you and judge you if you're on the other side. But he's also what? A caring father who cares about the downcast, who cares about the orphan, who cares about the widow, who sympathizes in that. Look at the last one. Prince of peace. Prince of peace. This is what the king will accomplish. And that goes back to the first uh, verses there about him uh, bringing light to the nations and multiplying the nations and gladness and presence and finally putting the war to rest so that there is peace in the land. Now, now this is interesting. When Jesus comes in his incarnation, many people misunderstood the type of peace that the Prince of Peace brings. Because we're talking in here about a political peace, aren't we? We're talking a, a, a national peace amongst other nations. But when Jesus comes in the incarnation, it's not primarily for a political peace that he comes. That The political peace that Jesus comes to bring is not in the first coming, it's in the second coming. You got that? Okay. What's the When he comes in his first coming, what's the peace that he's coming to bring? Peace with God. That's right. Right? Uh, having been justified in Christ, we have peace with God through redemption, Paul says in Romans. Okay? So there's, there's a... There's a, a peace with God, right? And then there's an actual political peace that gets played out. Okay, so what's going to happen here? Verse 7, There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. Now watch this, watch this. From then on and... Forever. Now, now you, you don't look as shocked as you need to. That's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant right there. That goes back to 2 Samuel 7, where the, the Davidic covenant was given, and here is a ruler who comes in David's line who will rule the people of God forever. Here he is, Isaiah says. This is the guy that's going to do that. And we know that um, King Jesus is the one who does this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. There's God's military title again, right? The Lord of hosts. So watch this, okay? Watch how this gets fulfilled, and we'll, we'll land the plane here. Uh, flip over to uh, Luke chapter 1. Look at this. The angel comes to Mary. The angel comes to Mary. Uh, and it's interesting that this happens because... Isaiah 7.14 is fulfilled in and through the Virgin Mary, isn't it? Who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus, in Mary. Watch the language here. So the angel comes, I know you know these verses, and I know it's July, but we're talking Christmas here, okay? Luke 1, the angel comes, you know, do not be afraid, you'll conceive in your womb, bear a son, you shall name him Jesus. Look at verse 32. Are you there? He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. That's 
similar language to mighty God that's used in Isaiah 9, 7, okay? And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, right? And, verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. You see it? Ties it right in together with what we're looking at in Isaiah. Okay, so we come to this section where Emmanuel is introduced, what he owns, what he does, how he comes into the world, and his occupation as king. And we see that played out in the New Testament in the work of Jesus. Okay, well, we're, we're just getting going here in Isaiah, guys, but this is, this is awesome, and I hope that you're enjoying it as much as I am. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for these verses and uh, time in your word. We thank you that we can see on the other side of the fulfillment how precise and specific that you are in bringing these things to pass in the person and work of Jesus. And, and Lord, it's, it's neat to see that some of what we've read today has already been fulfilled. And some of what we've read today about you coming in your glory to bring peace on earth and uh, to put all your enemies under your feet, that that is yet to come. So, Father, between each coming of Jesus, the first coming and the second coming where we live, will you make us to live with allegiance to you? That we will stand on your word and the gospel, whatever happens, whatever pressure, whatever persecution happens, uh, whether that's Amazon or whether that's getting kicked out of a class or whether that's getting put in jail or worse. Lord, might we learn from these men and women of old who stood faithful and that to stand on your word and to submit ourselves to it and to trust it and believe it and live in light of it is the safest and the best place that we can be. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for these verses that remind us of his coming and his work. Uh, thank you, Lord, that we know him in the gospel and that we can walk confident before you in him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.